Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Titus chapter 2. Finish chapter 2 up tonight. And I'm hoping and praying we don't lose lights in the process. But if we do, I'm going to keep going. Y'all can choose to leave if you want or not. Um, <laughs> um, Titus 2, we'll look at the last five verses tonight, 11 through 15. My engagement was about five months long to the day. Um, we got engaged on December 28th. We got married May 27th. Um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that the only people who like long engagements are in-laws and the devil. Um, it's just not good to be engaged for a long time. I know people who've been engaged, been engaged for three years, not a good thing. Just get married. Um, my anticipation during that time, during that time of engagement led me to do many things. Um, I really amped up my desire to surprise Adrian with things. So I would, you know, leave notes under her windshield in the morning. I'd I'd bring her Chick-fil-A breakfast at her door, um, just different things like that. Um, we, we would have a lot of conversations we needed to have during that time, during that engagement time, before we were married. Um, I, I would take that time to think about my life a lot. Um, because even though I was an adult when I got married, um, in a lot of ways when you get married, it's the transition um, in, in some ways from childhood to adulthood. Um, if you're still in school as I was, it's kind of that transition spot. Um, Honestly, when, when, when I was engaged, I stopped hanging around with a lot of the people I'd been kind of casually hanging around with for years. When you're a seminary student, you spend a lot of time in big groups of people studying in the library, and, and often that's um, got guys and girls in it, and, and you kind of, before you're engaged or dating anybody, you kind of like that, because it's like you're hanging out with all these girls, um, and I kind of just stopped doing that once Adrian and I were dating and engaged, because I don't care anymore. <laughs> like, I'll just study on my own. Um, I knew life was going to change when the wedding day came for the better. Um, And we're in a similar period as Christians. We're in a similar period. We live in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. Um, Everything will change when Jesus comes, and it will be for the better. But everything will change. Just imagine that. Young people look forward to their wedding day their whole life. Um, Many times that's, that's something even from childhood. They're looking forward to the day they get married. And then the wedding comes and the reality of their life changes forever, or at least as long as their spouse is alive. They, it changes forever. In an even higher way, when Jesus returns, there will, the, things will change in such a way that everything is different, but in such a way that everything will stay that way that it changes to forever. Life will be transformed. All of existence will be transformed. Everything we think we know about the world will be transformed when he comes. So how do we live in between? How do we live in that period in between the first appearing 
and the second appearing of Jesus. That's what Paul's going to talk about in Titus 2, 11 through 15. Let's read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We're going to start at the end and work back. Um, Paul tells Titus to declare these things. Declare um, what, what he's just talked about in 11 through 14. He says, declare these things. Technically, all of chapter 2 he's telling him to, to declare, but it's summed up in 11 through 14. It's the gospel. Um, remember, the gospel transforms. We take that back to 2, 1 through 10. Um, it transforms older men, transforms young, it transforms men, women, young, old, slaves, different races, how we work. It transforms everything. It, it does that. So the church preaches that gospel. The church preaches. That's what we do. We declare truth to the world. God does his saving work through the preaching of truth, through the preaching of the Bible. Um, that's the point of Romans 10. Um, I'm losing track of the, of the progression of it, so let me just look that up real quick. Romans 10. Um, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Um, and so understand the process. Someone goes, they preach, that person hears, they believe, and they're saved. That's the process. We, God saves people in the world through the preaching of the word. Uh, I take preaching very seriously because of that. Um, God saves through preaching. In our Bible reading plan as a church, I read Jonah this week, Jonah 1 through 4. And, you know, Jonah's pretty interesting because Jonah comes to Nineveh. We usually only know part 1 and 2. We don't know 3 and 4. Um, he, you know, gets swallowed up by the fish and spit out. He goes to Nineveh, and he preaches the lousiest sermon in history to these people. I mean, it's, it's literally, I think it's four words in the Hebrew. Like, he just preaches a lousy sermon to these people. He's got no interest in this being a good sermon. He just preaches a lousy sermon, and the entire city repents. Like, the whole city just sackcloth and ashes out in the streets, throwing out all their, all their idols and all of that. That's how God uses preaching. He does that. Every, every pastor I know has told me this same thing, that on the Sundays, and this is true for me as well, on the Sundays they think they knocked it out of the park, Nobody responded. On the Sundays, they think they really preached not a great sermon. People tell them it's the best sermon they've ever preached, and it really spoke to them. Um, the, the Spirit is like that. The Spirit is like the wind. He blows where he wishes. God uses the preaching of the word to work in people, whether we thought it was good or not. God saves through preaching. God also grows Christians in their faith through the word being preached. John 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's why a Christian who never hears the word preached is so famished spiritually, just, just hungry and not fed. You, you need to hear the word preached. 
And you need to hear the word through your private devotions, through a small group like Sunday school, and through the pulpit. You need that. If you don't, you're not eating, you're famished, you're hungry, and you're not getting food. God left the church, not just the preacher, he left the church to do this, to preach the word. It's how the church has advanced, grown, and survived for 2,000 years. It's what he's done through preaching. I'm always skeptical when um, somebody tries to diminish preaching. I was reading a book a couple weeks ago. Um, You may have read it, honestly, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It's by Jim Simbala. It's the story of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in, in New York. Um, I, I love Brooklyn Tabernacle's music, just, just phenomenal music. Um, but as I, I didn't finish the book because I'm reading it, and over and over again, Jim keeps um, diminishing preaching and saying that the, the only way the church is built is through prayer. And the whole time I'm reading it, and I'm like, why can't it be both? He, he just is diminishing preaching and, and, and saying prayer is how the church is built because that's what worked in his context. But why can't it be both? Why can't the church be built on preaching and prayer? Why is it one or the other? He compared it to the book of Acts, and he says, look, the church was birthed in a prayer meeting. The upper room, there's 120 people there. They're praying, and the Holy Spirit falls. But he ignores the fact that then Peter goes out and preaches, and 3,000 people are saved. So 120, 3,000, you take your pick. Um, It's how the church is built, prayer and preaching. Not many other professions in the world do what I do right now. Basically, comedians and politicians do this, what I'm doing right here. Um, Some of them do it well, some of them not so well. Um, I preach, and you preach. Now, you don't preach from a pulpit like this. Um, You don't get paid to preach, but your calling is to preach. Your calling is to proclaim. It's the calling of every Christian, proclaim the truth. Lost people can only be saved through hearing the gospel and believing. We just read that in Romans 10. They aren't going to get saved just because you live a good life around them. They're not going to. You have to declare it to them. So what do you declare? Well, that's verses 11 through 14. We declare this. You notice the word appear pops up two times in this passage, verse 11 and verse 13. The grace of God has appeared, and we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's two appearings, the first appearing and the second appearing. The first appearing. The first appearing of Jesus was the appearing of grace. Jesus did not come in that time to judge, but to save. He lived the life that we should have lived. He was meek and humble. He was gentle and lowly. He served. He had nowhere to lay his head. He died for our sins. He laid down his life. He was raised to defeat death. In doing that, he brought salvation, as you see, for all People. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But rem- a few things to say about that. First, remember the connection to, to verses 9 through 10. Remember last week we were talking about slaves and their masters. And literally, this is connecting to that. We, we always read in verse 11, and it's the grace of God has appeared so that the outcast of society, the people everyone has forgotten, can be saved. No, like Scripture is pretty clear. Those people get saved pretty easily because they've been forgotten. When God remembers them, they come running to God. No, verse 9 and 10 is talking about slaves obeying their masters, even their bad masters. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared to all people. 
bringing salvation. So it's, it's not the dejected and outcast, it's the terrible people, the terrible masters who slaves, that they're, they're going to whip you and treat you terribly. We want them to be saved by the grace of God that has appeared to them. It's the grace appearing to the um, worst of people as the possibility for them to be saved. Salvation for even the worst of the worst. Of course, it doesn't save all people like, like immediately. Um, you know, when Jesus died, not every person on the planet was saved in that moment. Um, that would be um, a, a heresy called Unitarianism. Um, you may know of a Unitarian church. I don't think we have one in Tifton. Um, we had one in Bowling Green where I went to college, um, pretty close to the college campus. Um, Unitarianism is the belief that everybody will be saved no matter what. Like, it's not about faith in the cross. It's not about believing the gospel. Just simply, everybody will be saved. Um, very popular by a guy, preacher named Rob Bell. Um, you might have seen him on, like, a talk show. They bring him on a lot as a religious expert. Um, he, he's not a religious expert. I'm not even sure he's an expert on anything. Um, he wrote a famous book called Love Wins. And the basic premise of the book, everybody will be saved because love will win. God's love will triumph. But that's not true. That's not true. It's only those who believe who will be saved. The, the death of Jesus makes it possible for all people to be saved. Anybody can now be saved. They have to receive it. They have to repent of their sins and believe the gospel. And they can be saved. The worst of the worst. So you get the first appearing, verse 11. Then you got verse 12 and 14, the... Um, the in-between, we'll get to the second appearing in a minute, 12 and 14, the in-between, the time in between the first and second coming. How do we live during that time? Well, we look back to the first appearing and we learn from it. We, we learn from what Jesus did, how to walk in this time that we're in. And secondly, we look ahead to the second appearing with hope. Verse 13, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of, of Jesus, we, we, we look back to the first coming and learn. We look ahead to the second coming and hope. It, it's this grace of Jesus. It teaches us. Notice the word training, verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Not making us, training us. Training us to be able to do it. It's important we understand that. Because the common message that, that um, are, is taught in churches of something like this. You need to be self-controlled. You need to stop giving in to all your temptations. You need to stop giving in to lust or alcohol or, or whatever. Um, and the person responds, I can't. I've tried. I've tried so hard and I can't do it. And the person responds, well, you just need to try harder then. You need to, need to do better. And there's no good news in that. It's all condemnation. It's all condemnation. As we grow to know the grace of God in Jesus more and more, it trains us. We, we learn the grace, we come to understand the grace, and we're trained by that. We learn over time. We're in training. That means we're not going to be great at it at first. We're not going to be great at, at, at resisting temptation at first. Hopefully, after a few years of being trained by the grace of God, we're going to grow in that. Um, but th this sort of thing doesn't come natural to us. It doesn't. When we're in training for a job or a sport or a skill, we're terrible when we first start. We just are. We're terrible. You know, your first day on the job at a company, you don't know anything you're doing. You've got to be trained to learn how to do what you've got to do. After years of working at it, you get better. 
Caleb, the first time you picked up a guitar, you were probably terrible, weren't you? Exactly. <laughs> no, you're not terrible now. You did great. Um, but we meditate on the grace of God revealed in the Bible. We meditate on it. We grow in love. We grow in joy. We grow in holiness over time. Let me give you an example of how this works. Um, not spiritual related, but have you paid attention to yourself lately since the past year has taken you captive? Um, you go to Walmart now, and what do you do? Well, you, you don't even have to remind yourself to stay out of people's way, do you? I mean, you're walking down an aisle, somebody's coming your way, and you, like, get over like this to avoid them, don't you? You just naturally move around them all the time. Why do you do that? Well, I do that. Maybe you don't, but, but, but I just do that naturally. I don't even think about it. Why do you do that? Well, it's not because there's a sign over there that says, please stay six feet apart. You stopped reading those signs a long time ago. We all did. No, it, it's, you've trained yourself to do this. You, you've heard six feet apart so much that it just comes naturally to you. That's the idea. We hear about God's grace so much that we're trained to live godly lives. Not because there's a sign on the wall. We've just learned it naturally over time. We learn to say no. He says we're, we're being trained, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. It's to renounce. It's to say no. Say no to those things. Ungodliness and worldly passions. These are the appeals of the current age. Not just in 2021, but, but like the current age is in, in between the first and second coming of Jesus. It's been the story of every culture in history. It's, it's ungodliness and worldly passion that people want to invest their lives in. They were the appeals of Paul's day, and they're the appeals of our day. Think of the appeals of our current age. Um, I think the King James puts this um, indulgence. Not, it's either... I don't know if that replaces ungodliness or worldly passion, but it's indulgence. Um, I'm sorry, I take that back. Um, the King James says appetite, not, not indulgence. I got my notes wrong on that. Um, have an appetite for all kinds of wicked things. Indulge in them. Um, you see that with sexuality today. Um, sex is not wicked, but sin and the devil have twisted it and made it all kinds of wicked flavors out there for people to indulge in. You see it materially. Um, indulge. Have everything. Get all kinds of stuff. Accumulate all kinds of stuff. Accumulate clothes. Accumulate cars. Accumulate money. Accumulate trinkets. Like, like have tons of money and have all the things you want but don't need. We don't need all the stuff we buy. We're told by the culture we've got to have it. We just got to have it. We don't need, you know, 600 shirts in our closet, but something tells us that we got to have that. Got to have it. Or you think entertainment. You think entertainment, Netflix, iPhone, Facebook, whatever. Like, do you know how many people waste their life in our world just watching YouTube video after YouTube video? Like, it's a temptation of mine. I just have my phone out, and I'm on YouTube, and oh, interesting, five-minute video interviewing this preacher. Here, let me watch that. Oh, hey, look, it's a theory video about Superman. Let me watch that. Oh, hey, it's a trailer for the next Star Wars movie. Yeah. And three hours later, I'm like, oh, man, where'd those three hours go? That, that's the temptation of today. Just entertain yourself to death. Just waste your life watching seven seasons of a TV show on Netflix in a weekend. Just waste your life refreshing your Instagram. 
like waste your life sending Snapchat after Snapchat. Waste your life playing Angry Birds. Like, like just do it. Just do it. it. It's okay. You've worked hard. You deserve it. Our age wants to feast on all these things. It's all about self. You need, they'll say, you need to live your truth. You need to be true to yourself. You need to make the most of your life and love yourself. And grace, the grace of God that has appeared, teaches us to say no to that. It's lawlessness, verse 14. He did this, he saved us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He did that. We learn to say no, and we learn to say yes. You must replace sinful appetites with spiritual desires. If you don't, you will never, you will never cast aside sinful desires if you don't replace them with something else. So often in church, youth are told what they shouldn't do, but they're not told what they should do. I've, I saw it when I was you know, in, in youth group when I was a kid. It was all about don't do these things. You know, don't, don't get drunk. Don't have sex. Don't, don't listen to rock and roll music, whatever. Don't, don't do any of that stuff. They're, they're told to deny themselves of all the things they want, but not taught to love something greater, to want something greater than those things. They're not taught to say yes to a better life in Christ. Uh, Paul describes that better life in verse 12. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's not just like a rule that we have to follow. That's something that we have to come to love. Because if we don't love being self-controlled and upright and godly, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We do the thing that we love the most. We, We do we do that. Self-controlled is how we relate to ourselves. Um, upright is how we relate to others. And godly is how we relate to God. It's three aspects of our life there. We live self-controlled so that we don't give in to our desires. When we're around other people, we live upright. And we live godly lives in our relationship with God, reflecting God's character to those around us in loving relationship with him. Not just that, we have a new identity Look at verse 14. See how Jesus sees us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus sees us, Christians, in three ways in in this verse. We're, We're ransomed, we're redeemed, that is, we are redeemed from the kingdoms of this world and, and brought over into his kingdom. He's, he's ransomed us out, kind of like if, if we were taken captive, you know, in like a castle and, you know, a knight had to come and rescue us. He would redeem us from the hands of the enemy. He would take us out of there, right? Secondly, he has purified for himself, so we're cleansed. We're cleansed from our sin. It's not just that we're forgiven. We are cleansed from them. That is, God looks at a Christian, does not see their sin anymore. He sees righteousness. He sees complete righteousness because it's Christ's righteousness. It's not ours. He has cleansed us. He's purified us. God sees us as ransomed, cleansed, and and fourthly, or thirdly, treasured. Look at the end of verse 14, a people for his own possession. That is, Jesus didn't just save us. He didn't just perform his, you know, God duty that he had to do. No, he, he, he bought us to possess us. He bought us to have us. It carries the idea of, you know, in the, in the days of, 
of this time, um, marriages weren't the same. Um, uh, uh, <clears throat> a groom would come to the father of a bride and pay a bride price. And he would do that to secure for himself a bride. It's something like that. Jesus did this, why? Because he wants to have a bride. He wants to rescue a bride and have for himself a treasured bride, a people for his own possession. When you understand that this is what grace has made true for you, it transforms you. You, you love the things that God loves. It makes you love the things God loves. Not just to do them because you have to, but because you love them. You have a better life than you used to. You have a better life in Christ than you had in your sin. Why? Because you're treasured. You're treasured. The devil's kingdom doesn't treasure you. It doesn't. This world does not treasure you. Both those things want to eat you alive and devour you and shred you to pieces. Jesus treasures you. You're for his own possession. That's what he says. So that's how we live in the time in between the first and second coming of Jesus. We, um, we, we say no to the world. We say yes to God. We, we put aside our sinful tendencies and we replace them with godly desires. And we wait for the second coming, verse 13. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for that. We love the things of God as we wait for the second appearing. We've, we've learned from the first appearing. It's helping us to walk in this in-between time. We wait for the second appearing. This, the first appearing was an appearing where Jesus was humble, meek, lowly, and, 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 and came strictly to save. The second appearing will be much different. It will be an appearing of glory. You see right there in verse 14, 13, it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory. Jesus will appear in the clouds. Every eye will see him. Every eye. He will bring eternal joy to those who love him. He will bring justice to those who hate him. He will usher in eternal life for those who love him. He will bring the joy of eternity to them. He will usher in eternal damnation for those who hate him. He will bring the horror and terror of hell for those who hate him. Oh, I hope that makes us tremble, thinking about people that we know who don't know him. The, the horror and terror of hell. He will not be a meek and mild carpenter when he comes a second time. He will be a victorious warrior. We wait for that with hope. We aren't just denying our flesh here on earth for nothing. You know, we're not just putting off those, those passion, worldly passions and ungodliness that the world presents to us all the time. We're not just putting that off, you know, just for nothing. We're doing it because there are greater joys coming. That there are greater things coming that, that, that make the desires of this earth look like cow dung. Like it, it just makes it look worthless. The things that are coming are, are worth so much more joy than anything the world offers you. Anything. Compared to the joy we will feast on in eternity, the material pleasures of this world are worthless. What is that joy we will feast on? It's right there in verse 13. His glory. We're waiting for the appearing of 
His glory. You were made to see glory. You were made to see glory. You were made to sing of His glory, to love His glory, to be enveloped in His glory. Remember I said this morning, we're made to worship glory when we see it. It's why, you know, eating a sirloin steak and tasting it just enlivens our taste buds. It's why the Grand Canyon leaves us breathless. It's, it's why so many wonderful things, when they're revealed to us, we can't help but stand in awe because we're made to worship glory. Do you long for his glory? That's the joy of heaven. That's the highest joy of heaven. Throw out any sentimental ideas you have about heaven with a baby sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Throw that stuff out. It's his glory. Long to see his glory. To stand in awe of the beautiful Christ in all of his glory. We said Titus is the blueprint of a healthy church. This is the message healthy churches preach. Christ died and resurrected to show his grace. Christ will return in his glory. So repent, believe, and follow him. Say no to the world and say yes to him. Because there are beautiful treasures coming in him, far greater than anything the world offers. We'll see what some of those glories are in in chapter 3. As we look at um, good works that we do here on earth, it says that that's what we're prepared for. Um, Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make us long to see the glory of Jesus, to see him in all of his splendor, all of his holiness, all of his beauty. Lord, what, what more beautiful thing in this world could we see? Lord, make us long for that glory so much that we do not want the things of this world. We do not want the appetites of this world that are constantly put before us. We do not want to waste our lives watching the next YouTube video or the next newscast or the next whatever, the next sitcom. Lord, we don't want to waste our life in drunkenness and sexual immorality. We don't want to waste our life getting the next high off of buying material stuff. Lord, we don't want that stuff because there's greater joy to be found in your kingdom. So, Lord, make us long for that. Make us feast on that glory in what way that we can now and long to completely feast on it one day when we see it. And, oh, Lord, we long that we would see it. So we cry out, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We want to see your glory. But until then, help us to say no to the world and say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.